And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, February 1st. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris, continuing our position preview series. We move on to third base, which coincidentally was a position in which a star was moved over the weekend the move is still not official but you know Nolan Arenado appears to be headed to St. Louis for a pretty underwhelming return based on what we know right now that of course still not totally official but that sort of leads off the news segment of today's show and the first question everybody has is with Arenado how much are we really taking away from his projection with the move out of Coors Field into a pretty pitcher-friendly environment like Bush Stadium? Yeah, it's tough um, because it's also wrapped up in this shoulder injury that he had, you know, that, that tanked some of his numbers. Um, but you don't just take the away numbers, and the reason you don't do that is because... Uh, Colorado hitters see uh, vastly different pitch mixes when they're on the road because, um, you know, breaking balls don't work in Colorado. So they see a ton of fastballs at home. They become fastball-centric. They swing more on fastballs in the league, and and they they do damage with it at home. Then they go on the road where the rest of the league has been trending away from the fastball for a long time, has been trending towards the breaking ball, and they just see a ton of junk. And you can even see it in Arenado's splits. <clears throat> the first two days after he leaves, he has like a 700 OPS for his career. And then the days after that, he climbs up to sort of an 850 type situation and, and higher. So I personally think he'll hit something like 275 with a 350 OBP and a 500 slugging. It's not vintage Colorado. It's definitely had some BABIP air taken out of it and some slugging. But it's also a very good player. Yeah, and I think one player that people started to think about over the weekend was Matt Holliday. He made the same move effectively in his career, uh, going from, of course, Colorado to St. Louis. And he didn't completely fall apart with that move. And I, I think if you set the expectations in the high 20s, low 30s for home runs, as opposed to high 30s, low 40s, you're on the right track. The batting average should be pretty good if not great. I don't think it's going to be a, a 300 situation, but the run production should also be pretty good too. And of course, just from a pure team standpoint, this is a big boost for the Cardinals. This is good news for Paul Goldschmidt. This is good news for Tommy Edmond. This is good news for the other fantasy players that we rely upon in St. Louis to have one more really good hitter in the lineup. Now, we've made it uh, our mission on this podcast to rip apart the Rockies at every possible turn. I don't think we have to go into great detail doing that. This is pretty obviously a salary dump. Unless there are some players involved in this trade that we have not previously heard about, it 
looks really bad on paper. Austin Gomber, uh, John Torres, Jake Woodford are the names that I've seen as the return. And Colorado is also sending $50 million to the Cardinals to offset some of the cost of Arenado's contract. So not only are they dumping a perennial all-star, but they're also paying some salary to have him off the books, which is just gross. But do you like any of the players? Well, I know you like Gomber. We can't really like Gomber as a pitcher in Colorado, though, anymore. That's that's pretty hopeless. Even his stuff number will go down because his curve won't have the same break. But he did. He does have a, a top twenty stuff number among starters. So I, I, I you know, I like him. Uh, we'll see how the command works out. All the things we've worried about, though, with with Gray and Marquez and the Colorado starters over the years. Now all those apply to Gomber. So the I mean, glimmer I, of hope for him as a late target. It's gone for the short term. Yeah, and their pitching coaching is, you know, their pitching coaching and pitching development is bottom shelf. I mean, they they have very obvious things about four seamers and sinkers that they haven't figured out yet. Um, maybe because they're so obsessed with cores and they think that they have to play differently, um, you know. But if that's the case, then they should have a bunch of sinker guys, and they don't. They have a bunch of four seam guys, and they're telling them to throw low in the zone. It's just a weird combo. Um, and, uh, and so I don't have the most confidence that they will get the most out of him in Gomber. So yeah, it's just a really poor thing. I went from being super happy to have him among my keepers in a 20 teen, 28 keeper dynasty to, I don't think I'm keeping him. I don't think you need to keep him in a 20 team dynasty. Really unfortunate for him, but the guy that kind of wins in this trade from a prospect perspective is probably John Torres. Uh, He was acquired by the Cardinals as part of the Oscar Mercado deal with Cleveland, and we haven't seen him play above low A. The time he spent in low A was just 21 games in 2019. Of course, he's among the many prospects who didn't play competitive games anywhere during the 2020 season. So he'll probably go to the Midwest League or stay in low A to begin his time in Colorado. I guess with all the shuffling around, might not be the Midwest League anymore. But uh, he's interesting because he's toolsy and he might be the kind of guy that if the hit tool comes around several years from now, we're talking about him as you know one of the ways this trade eventually bore some fruit for the Rockies. Yeah, yeah. You, you'd hope that by including the $50 million, that they would have gotten somebody like uh, Gorman. <laughs> Nolan the, Gorman would have been a good target. Nolan yep. Gorman. Or uh, since they you know feel like they may need to acquire pitching through – trades rather than and, and drafting rather than free agency um, because only relievers have signed there. Um, Matthew Liberator, you would have thought would have been a large um, sort of get for them. And they didn't. So I don't know. Torres looks good, but the strikeout rate is up and down. It would be so much better if we just knew what his strikeout rate was this year. (laughs) Um, And I don't even know how good, uh, even if you could trust the other team to tell you the right strikeout rate, you know, I don't even know how valuable a strikeout rate is if it's accrued facing only the same pitchers all year that are on your team. So Yeah, uh, I mean, if it's Torres and he's facing some guys who are a little older maybe because of the way alternate site stuff was working. That's true. Maybe. It's okay, but this is not a good haul. And I think, as you pointed out, since you're throwing $50 million back to help cover costs, 
you should be getting a top prospect back. I mean, even in the the small deal that the Orioles and Angels made where Alex Cobb was sent to Anaheim, Jemai Jones was the prospect going back the other way. At least to get a prospect, a fringe top 100 guy, do do something. Like do something smart, do something that makes sense, but we can't we can't do it. We can't have Colorado making decisions like that. For Colorado in a team building or rebuilding type situation, you know, trading Herman Marquez is the move because you get the most for him probably. Um, trading Arnado to free up cash to try and sign Story is like, <laughs> I. Mm. It's robbing Peter to then punch Paul for no reason. Right. And do you think Story is going to see what just happened and be like, oh, yeah, yes, please. Sign on the, I'm going to sign on the dotted line. So I think the likelihood that story signs is very low unless they blow him out of the water with another big deal right after the last big deal went poorly. I mean, no chance. I don't think so. And so trading Herman Marquez would have been the move. That's what the market is doing right these days. The market is, is saying that, um, uh, you know, teams years of control. That's what, the, what they value. I don't know. I, I like this so much from the Cardinals aspect that I was thinking about, like, you know, what about salary dumps being um, uh, a bit of a, of a weakness in the market where maybe it's a good idea instead of buying a free agent to sort of buy a free agent this way? Uh, because they're about to get, I did the math and it looks like, you know, Everything has still has to be reported. It's not all, you know, finalized. But if the 50 million and the extra 15 million and all that stuff, if all that stuff is true, the, the extra year of 15 million that they're saying Arnado is going to get, if all that stuff is true, I think they basically get Arnado for 23 million dollars a year. And there's no way that they would have gotten a player of Arnado's quality with 23 million dollars a year. Right. If you look at recent players to get 23 million on the open market, you're getting into like the Zach Wheeler territory and Patrick Corbin. JT Real Mudo, and I would say Arenado is a cut above those players. As good as those players all are, that's a, a really nice bargain. He has the kind of skill set that should age really well. Premium defender should become at least an average defender as he loses some skills defensively, the way he makes a lot of contact, the power is not just the product of the ballpark. All those things point to a player who will still be good at the end of his time, still be a regular, still be an above-average regular maybe a two, two and a half, three win sort of player in those end years of the deal. And that's fine. You're not hurting yourself at $23 million a year with a player like that. So got to tip the cap to the Cardinals as much as I don't want to because they took advantage of an opportunity that doesn't come around that often. Here's the last caveat, though, that I have on this is, you know, Matt Swartz found a while ago that, and I think it's still true, but we'd have to retest it to, 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 to say it's lock solid. But he found that, Players that sign with their original team that re-sign do better than players that sign on the open market. And I think the theory behind that was that those teams know that player best. You know, they, they know their own players best. And if they're letting them go, it's because they've been watching the medicals or they know something about their character or their makeup. They know uh, stuff that, that um, other teams wouldn't know that... Uh, maybe scouts couldn't even catch because they've been in the clubhouse with them. They've, they've had the negotiations with them. They know how, how things go. So, um, if that's true, then the, the player dump, uh, you know, of the salary dump like this 
would be like another level. Like you wouldn't expect those players maybe not to do so well because the team had looked at everything and was like, nah. So I wanted to say, oh yeah, the U Darvish thing, great. Um, you know, that, that was a great one. Um, and, and this one should work out as well. But then I was also thinking about like John Carlos Stanton, uh, didn't work as well. Um, there's the Adrian Gonzalez trade, uh, uh, you know, that did work well. So, you know, I don't know. This could be kind of a kind of a mailbagish thing, a thing you can send in on, to, you know, what is your opinion as a listener, uh, about the viability of acquiring talent this way? Um, it seems like it's never been cheaper and yet the team is giving up on them and they have, they have more access to more knowledge about the player than anybody else. So I, I think, um, I still think that this is like a undervalued, like the Padres did a pretty good job, right? It seems like just mm-hmm. shopping this way. They got Snell and Darvish and the two of them paid together are paid together something like 25, 30 million. Yeah, and you're shortening up the commitment in those cases. That's You're not true taking too, five, right? six, seven years in those deals. So, yeah. you know, it, it's one or the other. You're either saving money because the team trading the player away is sending you a big bundle of cash, and that's bringing down the AAV. So you're getting an AAV below the open market, or you're getting you know, three or four years on the back part of a deal for a player that you trust will still age well, and you're not committing for six or seven, which right. when you think about competitive cycles for teams – that's closer three to the size fits. of a window. Yeah, three or four yeah. fits better. I mean, yeah, six or seven years, you could be good, bad, and then good again over a span of six Tatis or seven years. He's never sends a size an extension. The Padres could be bad again in five years. So um, I don't want to make San Diego fans sad. There's so much to be happy about. I think he's on the right, cover right. of MLB The Show 21 too, which yeah, is a great player, pretty sweet cover. Probably might be the context neutral best player in baseball by projections. That's what I, something I saw with the bad X. I'm glad the Bat X and I are on the same page. I like to stay friends with all no, the you projection systems out there. You hate Tatis. <laughs> You're on record. We're gonna find some of those hey. those drops. I'm sure I we can, can hear go to the tape. I'm sure we have some tape there of DVR saying, "I hate Fernando Tatis," <laughs> and he will never be a tape. good player. I think I said I'd rather have Javi Baez <laughs> yeah. uh, a round or two later than Tatis going into last draft oh, season. So and well. But then you also bought Fernando Tatis in auction and won that league. <laughs> Literally, the first player I got on my team in NL Labor was a player that I was talking about not wanting to draft. Are you playing the long con? Are you playing the media con game? No, it's it's the nature of snake drafts. The issue I had with Tatis was just yeah. the order in which players are taken in snake drafts. Feeling like I could get a similar player or an equal player a little later on. It wasn't about Tatis himself never being good. I, I was worried about the K rate. I was worried about the back too, frankly, going into last season. But two thumbs up, one one on my board right now. New rankings up too since it's February. So check those out on the Athletic. A handful of other news items since we last spoke. Didi Gregorius stays in Philly, so I think that will probably bring his price up a bit. We talked about him on our shortstop episode. There's only a handful of parks that he fits really well. Philadelphia happens to be on that list, so I think that's kind of a win-win for player and team because had he left, I'm not really sure there was another player like him that they could put into that lineup. Uh, Eddie Rosario in Cleveland is pretty interesting because when we spoke on Friday... We were talking about the Brewers as a possibility. They apparently were looking at him to maybe play some first base. But look, we've thrown all sorts of shade at Cleveland this offseason, and for good reason with the decision to trade away Francisco Lindor. 
I like the Eddie Rosario signing for them quite a bit because I feel like he's a bit better than the Domingo Santanas and the, the lower end players that they've been trying to use in their outfield corners to fill those gaps for the last couple of seasons. So this to me looks like a really good fit and one where uh, I think the power we saw in Minnesota carries over, if not even bumps up slightly in Cleveland. I, I like this fit a lot for Eddie Rosario. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not, not great defensively, but he's projected to be about uh, 10% better than league average um, with the bat. And I just wanted to do to look real quick and see uh, when the last time was that they had uh, someone do that in the outfield. And of course, it was Michael Brantley in 2018. Um, but uh, it's also instructive uh, that they've only had in this century, I love saying this century. I mean, it's like 20 years. <laughs> this century, um, <laughs> this century, they've only had, uh, let's see, they've only had 16 player seasons in the outfield where somebody hit better than uh, 10% above league average. Uh, they are mostly owned by Shinsu Chu, Michael Brantley, uh, Manny Ramirez, and Grady Sizemore. They had a few good outfielders, but yeah, that's not enough outfield production over uh, a century-long stretch. I mean, like 20 years, like you said. <laughs> it is a fun way to describe it. <laughs> but in terms of his outlook and, and value, I, mean, I think any little slide in Eddie Rosario's ADP will stop now that he has a team. Sometimes we see that as we move further into draft season, the unsigned players begin to fall on the board a round or two. He'll pop back up. I think he's a top 100 guy for me because he's going to hit in the heart of that order. The run production should be good. The batting average from Rosario, 257 in the shortened season was the lowest we've ever seen from him as a big leaguer. Projections are between 269 and 279. So if you said 274, I'd be okay with that. He's hit 277 for his career. In some ways, because he doesn't walk a lot, he's actually a better fantasy player than he is a real-life player. You know, You think about all the... The ways he can produce value, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see maybe one more 30 home run season from Eddie Rosario here in 2021. Yeah, you know, he's a, he's he is a borderline talent and um, in terms of how it all sums up, I, you could see why the Twins maybe made that decision. If the private defensive metrics are as bad as something like outs above average, which says he's you know one of the worst outfielders in the league. Um, and he's headed towards uh, DH-dom there, um, you know, playing at sort of a uh, 5 to 15% above average with the bat doesn't really uh, move the needle much. And he'd be the kind of guy who small, signs small deals and goes and bounces around um, if, the, if those defensive metrics are for sure. But, you know, the Indians get him on a one-year deal. Uh, he's still in his prime. I think... Uh, you know, I'd probably say more like 25 to 27 homers, uh, but a decent batting average. Definitely a good bat to have in there. Uh, will be the best outfielder they've got uh, if you call Franville Reyes a DH. So uh, definitely uh, a good move for him. You know, he's very projectable. There's one thing that you would see if you look at Eddie Rosario's numbers is that he's basically been a 275, you know, 315 OBP, 500 slugging guy for four years straight. You know, there hasn't been there hasn't been a big breakout per se, but he's been like the same guy every year. And so I think that has a lot of value 
while he's still in his peak range. But at some time, uh, at 30, 31, 32, um, I'm going to peace out just because it's a little bit of that Danny Santana thing where, like, because of the defense, one year he could be in this situation and not get a good deal. Like, even if he'd ended up in Milwaukee as the first baseman, that would have been a bad deal compared to this one, I think. Because, you know, Milwaukee, they would have, you know you know, kept Vogelbach around or, you know, moved Rosario to the outfield some days and sat him against tough lefties or whatever, or whatever it is, because that's how the, the Brewers work. So, um, you know, as he plays these musical chairs, at some point he's going to end up in a bad place for his fancy value. Yeah. But I think for one more year, I'm <laughs> in at the price on Eddie Rosario. I think I've had him uh, three years running in AL labor. <laughs> the price no. has gone up a little bit every year, but he's like, just, he's returned that price every year. Might have to make it four for four this year during what could be his only season in Cleveland. Uh, one other note to pass along, Masahiro Tanaka officially announcing at the end of last week that he has agreed to a con- contract to return to Japan. So it brings his uh, seven-year time with the Yankees to a close. And it, it kind of looked like, based on some of the reaction, that there are factions of the Yankees fan base who somehow think that Tanaka underachieved during his time in New York when I would say he lived up to all the expectations and maybe even exceeded them in in some ways, right? I mean, he finishes with a 374 ERA, a 113 whip, a 991 strikeouts in just over 1,000 innings, 19 war. I mean, that's really good for any pitcher over a seven-year stretch. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, you know, wins-wise, too, you know, just, uh, you know, double-digit wins every year, um, you know, no losing records, like, you know, I, I don't normally talk about wins, but that's something that, like, uh, might fuel some people hating him, but he was 78 and 46, like, what? what's so bad? I think the one thing that people may not understand um, as evenly across uh, different parts of fandom is how tough of a park that is, you know? Yeah. Uh, he gave up a, a fair amount of homers and you might put that all on the pitcher, but I would put a lot of that on the park. So I, you know, I wouldn't, I would be surprised if he pitched in like St. Louis all those years, he would have had a much lower ERA and he's, his home run total would have been lower. Um, and that he would have been the same quality pitcher. It's true. Maybe part of the angst as it pertains to Tanaka in the eyes of those Yankee fans, they have not won a world series since 2009. That's a long time to go without winning a World Series if you're a Yankees fan. Definitely Tanaka's fault. <laughs> totally. It's all it's all his fault. Uh, but congrats to him finding a, a deal that he wanted, you know. It's good good for him. You're not going to you're not going to gloss over the biggest news of the day. Alex Cobb. Yeah. What's the biggest news of the day? Yeah. yeah. Alex Cobb to the Angels, baby. <laughs> Is there any no, I, reason? So I, I, any reason to believe? Yes, and it's extremely painful to me, but it's what the numbers say. So you're willing to put your name on it now? Well, yeah, now, especially that he's leaving Baltimore. <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to say. Now you're willing to put your name on it. <laughs> but he's uh, he's one of 40 pitchers with, uh, with the stuff and a, qual- and a command number over 103. So, you know, it's a, it's a small group of pitchers uh, that have good command and good stuff like he does. The curveball is good. The splitter is good. The one thing that, you know, people say, well, why did he not do better if those things are true? One thing is he's sinker first, right? He's not a four-seam guy. And we know we, we know about um, sinkers being put in play more. And that's why he doesn't have a great strikeout rate. 
But put him in a better park where that home run rate comes down a little bit. And I think he'll have usable numbers in in uh, fantasy baseball this year. I think he could be... Uh, I don't know. I'm not predicting like a Bundy-esque situation. Um, but look at what he did last year. 4-3 ERA, 134 whip. I think he could get that down to like a 410 and a, and a 125. Okay, let's play a quick game of Would You Rather. Never thought we'd oh, be doing God, this with Alex gonna, Cobb. You have to but scroll all the way down the ADP list. I had 162 starting pitchers on my update that went up <laughs> no, on Alex Monday Cobb. morning. <laughs> Alex Cobb did not make the cut, but outside of Baltimore, he should make the cut. Right. He will be in the next update. So At 162. <laughs> yeah, so let's see. Around 130. Okay, let's try this. John Lester a new member of the Nationals rotation. John Lester or Alex Cobb in a deep, deep, deep redraft Cobb. league. Is your Cobb over Lester. Yeah. How about Cobb versus Johnny Cueto? I'm glad I found it that quickly. Wow, that's... Uh, you did. You found, you found the, great, the right place for Would You Rather. Mm, yeah, a, I have a gift. It's not a very marketable gift, but it's a gift nonetheless. <laughs> uh, let me just... Uh, Peruse my uh, stuff and numbers for Mr. Cueto. I think they're pretty poor, actually. I, uh, I don't know if anyone likes Cueto at this point as a, I'll take Cueto. A, based on numbers. I'll take I think Cueto. we like him based on personality and, and whatnot. It's a but, 104 uh, stuff for Cobb, 102 for Cueto. Um, hmm. And it's 109 command plus for Cobb and 104 for Cueto. So Cobb gets Cobb gets him on both of those metrics, but um, even with the changes they made in San Francisco, uh, I think just the allure of having like a strategy for Cueto use, you know what I mean? Home streamer mostly. Yeah. Whereas Cobb, you'd just be sort of guessing if you were trying to, you know. But if I was forced to put them, like if you're talking about. Um, they're not in the same league, so you can't do NL only or AL only. But in an only league, I might, um, I might go Cobb. My numbers say he's better. All right, one more. How about his new oh, teammate? Oh, one Patrick last number. Sandoval. Wait, wait, wait. One mm-hmm. last number. This is important. I have uh, tiers for injury risk. Uh, Cobb is in the ninety first, like he's ninety first, like he's you know going to get hurt, like ninety first. 91st percentile yeah. in, in injury risk? Yeah. Cueto is in the 99th. Oh. <laughs> so I, that actually didn't help at all either. I, I would no. say they're very similar. I would put them right next to each other. I think Cobb and Cueto, I'd put them right next to each other. Okay, let's figure out who the neighbor on the other side is. How about Cobb's new teammate, Patrick Sandoval? If you're throwing a dart on one of those back-end starters for the Angels, is it Cobb or is it Sandoval? Um, I think I know where you're going with this one. I'm going to go with Cobb. Oh, a surprise. Well, Sandoval has below average stuff and command. Um, and uh, the way that they went and got Cobb, I, I feel like they, they're saying like, hey, we they traded Jemai Jones for him. I feel like they're saying that he's in our rotation, whereas Sandoval has options, I think, still. So he becomes the up and down guy. Six, seven starter, whatever it is. Seventh starter, because they're probably going to do a six-man rotation. So... The one thing that's weird about all this I did that I did want to bring up, uh, other than just looking at insanely deep pictures that nobody cares about, <laughs> is that um, 
Do you think this means that they're that they're that Otani's not going to pitch this year? I think this is a case where the Angels have learned a lesson that many of us learn playing score sheet in that you can never have too many starters. Like if you think you have enough starters, you don't have you still don't have enough. That's that's just the truth. I yeah. think they've had a ton of arm injuries. We've talked about you know, Bundy Otani Heaney and Canning all having arm injuries in their mm. somewhat recent past. Cobb being 91st percentile. <laughs> Cobb being high risk. Quintana maybe not being able to wash dishes after stabbing himself washing the dishes last year. Canning was on the year. shelf last year, right? Or was it the year before? I think it was for a stretch during the shortened season or coming out of 2019 into the shortened season. We were worried about his arm. I think they just need volume because – even if they're going to use Otani and they trust Otani, if they're going to keep a six-man rotation, they probably need 10 or 11 starters to do it. And now they've got probably eight that they would actually trust and maybe a list of 10 that could end up taking the ball Which is good. The, in that capacity. The average team, when I checked of a billion years ago, used 10. So I would assume that they used like something like 12 starting pitchers a year this year. Um, and back when we looked, they gave heavy innings to the first seven. So in this case, you're doing a six-man rotation, so you expect to give uh, heavy innings to at least seven or eight, and that means that Sandoval is going to pitch, but because he has options, because he's young, because he's maybe more fungible, because maybe he doesn't have the the same upside um, as the other veteran pitchers have shown when they're healthy, uh, now you have Sandoval as your uh, up-and-down security policy. And you, yeah. and you have six viable major league starters to begin the season. So yeah, I think maybe, I think that that part's overblown. Maybe I think Otani, they're going to give him one more shot. And I really, I just want to have one of those great, healthy Otani seasons. I want to know how much value I want to look at the end of the year and look and see how much value a nine category player could have. It'd be really cool to see him make it through the season healthy and effective. The per-game numbers, per-inning numbers in his debut season were really good. So if we could get that over a complete 2021, that would be huge, especially where he's going. He's actually very nicely discounted right now. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get on to our third base position preview. I begin with an apology to Jose Ramirez. I am sorry I ever doubted you as a player. (laughs) Uh, I know it was a mistake to even be worried about what you could do coming off that 2019 season. For those who don't remember, Jose Ramirez had an atrocious first half in 2019, 
bounced back in a big way. And I recall just not wanting anything to do with him in the back part of round one in my 2020 drafts. And that was a mistake because he's still there. He's kind of pushing just outside the top 10 in terms of ADP. I think the only thing really working against Jose Ramirez, you know, is not having Francisco Lindor there does hurt this offense, this lineup as a whole. So we might see a little bit of a a drop off in what Ramirez can do with some of his counting stats, but he's not really showing any signs of, of slowing down, at least on the surface with power output or even with speed. And we're still talking about a guy that is what, 28? So he turned 28 in September. So we're not at past 30. We're not worried about the stolen bases completely falling off a cliff at this point in Jose Ramirez's career either. Yeah, well, um, he helped, you know, fuel my uh, my run at the AL Labor title. Um, and it's funny because I remember uh, way before COVID, the uh, auction that we had in Florida, I remember thinking I need to have either Devers or um, I need to have either Devers or Jose Ramirez as my starting third baseman. And my, I'll have this whole like sort of decision tree that follows from that. And, you know, cause one will give me more stolen bases, one more average, that sort of deal. Um, and I wasn't willing to push, uh, with the market, you know, the elite players, a lot of times in auctions, um, will cost exactly at your value or maybe even a dollar or two more. And sometimes you have to pay that premium, uh, to get one of the elite players. You know, you don't want to pay, you know, $10 over your number, but if Trout goes for $10 over your numbers, you, you realize that there's uh, a premium for those top-end players, and then you start looking for where can I pay maybe $1 or $2 extra. Anyway, I ended up with Ramirez because I got him at like a buck over and wasn't willing to go to like 3 bucks over my value for, for Devers. I came out of the auction thinking that was a terrible decision that I'd made and that it was going to sink my whole season and I was so dumb. Uh, but, um, it ended up being prescient and, um, you know, one of the things that this highlights, I think is, um, sprint speed as a proxy for athleticism and as a, uh, to give us a sense of how uh, a player might age, how, what the shape of their bell curve will be. I've already talked about how like Gary Sanchez, uh, is a worse hitter because he's so slow. Uh, but what we saw with Devers is he hit the ground running at, um, you know, 21, he was 75th percentile in running. So then he had some stolen bases. We thought, okay, this is an athletic guy, but you look at him and you watch him play. And then you might not be surprised that he dropped immediately to the sort of the 50th percentile in his next two years. And then last year dropped down to the 40th percentile. Um, uh, and has been getting slower, uh, since he, that he, he dropped off a, a fair amount. I asked, um, you know, Derek Cardi, the guy, the, the, he runs the bat and the bat X and the bat X versus steamer Devers, Devers is the uh, fourth biggest difference between the two. And sprint speed is part of the reason why uh, sprint speed informs your BABIP. It informs your stolen base total. Um, and to some extent, uh, some of your aging factors. So uh, it's a lot of different things that led to um the bad X saying he's a $21 player and Steamer saying he's a $30 player, but you add, but sprint speed is a big part of that. Um, so I don't know. I haven't, don't have Ramirez a sprint seat up in front of me. Uh, I'm trying to get that right now, but, um, 59th percentile for 2020. And how is it? How is it for year to year? He was 72nd percentile in 19. He was 60th percentile in 18. So it moves between All right. the last two seasons. 
but still, you know, still pretty comfortably above average and not as sort of precipitous a drop, I think, as you saw with Devers, you know, like going from 78th to 74th, 75th, 60th, and he bounced back in 2019 to 72nd. That's like a more steady drop. Uh, there's something about Devers's like sort of large drop from 75th percentile to 50th percentile in one year that says um, that there's something going on there body-wise. Um, the things I like about him are is that he's like he's got a good hit tool. He's improved the standard deviation of his launch angle. Devers has, um, and so he I think he has a good like a good hit tool, um, but he also does not have a good sense of where the plate is. Uh, he swings up pitches outside the zone and then he has this like body thing uh, that may suggest that he won't uh, like he 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 now has more in common with um, Pablo Sandoval than I figured I'm not trying to body shame him I'm sorry no, no, no it's not like that at all I, I do think with Devers for a player that young to have some apparent conditioning problems is always a concern but I do think with Devers, like, we're seeing a little bit of that kind of sneaky athleticism too, in the form of you know, some long tail speed. Like you do see a handful of steals sprinkled in. So I still have some hope that he can get everything under control and, and actually bounce back. Maybe it's just inconsistent effort or back. You know, maybe it's it's that stuff. Maybe it's a little bit of an injury that he does that keeps him from doing his best runs um, every time. You know, could be so. After Ramirez, Ramirez is the only clear first rounder based on ADP. You have Manny Machado and DJ LeMahieu. We've talked about, I think, at least on two episodes already since he's eligible at first and second. Arenado, who we talked about just a few minutes ago. Anthony Rendon, Devers, and Bregman. Now, Rendon, Devers, and Bregman are all kind of lumped together just at the back, kind of outside the top 40 overall in drafts since January 1st. Arenado and LeMayhew go about 10 spots ahead of that, and Machado goes almost 10 spots ahead of LeMayhew. The thing I'm having trouble with when I look at the third base position, I can't see enough of a difference between projections and expectations for Manny Machado at that high price from this cluster compared to what you're going to get or you're expected to get from pretty much any one of Rendon, Devers, or Bregman. I think Devers brings the most risk and the most volatility for the reasons that you mentioned, but I think in his range of outcomes, I would agree with what it says in his Baseball HQ forecaster box. Devers has the type of tools that can win an MVP award. That is within his range. I, I see Rendon and Bregman as really stable players, two guys that are very unlikely to disappoint us if they're healthy. So just circling, circling back to Machado versus Rendon and Bregman, am I right to see very little difference between those three players, my inclination is to say, I'm going to pass on Machado in the second round, either get a pitcher or get some speed. And then when it comes back to me in round three, if I want to get an early third baseman, I'll be just fine with any one of Rendon or Bregman or possibly even Devers. Yeah, I was going to say that this might be more of an auction thing than than um, a snake draft thing because Manny Machado does project. I think Arenado is going to drop off this projection when he's adjusted for St. Louis. But by the bad X, Manny Machado is the second best third baseman at $25. But Devers is right there at $20 um, and Suarez at 23 I think Suarez, I hate to jump ahead, but Suarez to me is one of the bigger value propositions um, but I was going to say, don't these, this basically are all just third rounders. So 
I guess I, I guess in some ways I could see the like eat this, not that where you, you get something in the second round, like a pitcher, which you, if you didn't get one in the first round, it almost seems like you have to these days, um, get your ace in the second and then you won't have, you won't be sad having lost out on Manny Machado because basically everybody, Arenado, Rendon, Devers, Bregman, those are all just third rounders. That's what those, that ADP says to me. It's all just third rounders. So then you can have your pick. Yeah. I think in a vacuum, if you were just saying we're in an auction scenario, you're going to pay dollar for dollar for the players as you see fit. I actually think I like Bregman and Rendon a hair more than Machado. I mean, we're talking like a buck or two on the margins. We're not talking about mm-hmm. big differences at all. They're all ranked next to each other in my overall hitter list. Uh, but I've got Arenado tied into that group. I've got Devers connected to that group. I mean, there's so little that separates this group. Like, happily take what's left. And if you miss, you have the parachute. You have Eugenio Suarez. I'm glad you brought him up. His projections are ridiculous. Yeah, you're giving up a little bit of batting average compared to the other top-end third baseman, but... I think the bats got him for 47 home runs, a 373 Woba, 115 RBIs, and 107 runs. I hate to say this, but I think the Reds' offense as a whole is a little bit underrated right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to find that Suarez and Mike Moustakis in particular yeah. probably end up on a lot of my teams. Yeah, yeah. I, that's something I noticed when I was doing team futures was that the Reds' um, you know, pitching staff is undervalued because their stuff number is way better than their projected their projected quality as a staff, and that their hitting um, their hitting you know play, their their hitters are actually probably uh, undervalued too because the bad X uh, loves them more than any other projection system, um, and that's tied to their uh, their stack cast uh, underpinnings. So. Uh, what we saw last year from uh, Suarez, even though you know it wasn't one of his best years batting average wise, was the best barrel rate of his career. And since that's coming off of 2019, where he had the best barrel rate of his career to that point, um, you know your regression would have take him back to uh, like league leading type barrels. You know he'll be in the top 10, top 15 when it comes to barrel rate next year. So uh, that's good. And you want that. And I think that's my favorite strategy of the whole thing. The one thing that stands out to me about that other group uh, is Bregman is least liked by the bat compared to the other systems. Only 28 homers and four stone bases, a 17 to $18 player. Um, and that's because his stat cast numbers are underwhelming. Last year, he had a 3.9% barrel rate. It's not good. That's below average. His best barrel rate was 7.4%. Um, and that was in 2018. He's never had a good barrel rate. And I kind of think that the only thing I can say in, re- in, in response is that he's, he's never had a good barrel rate and he's had all these good numbers. And that I think maybe he's kind of figured out his home stadium in a kind of Brian Dozier-esque way that he's figured out where in the Crawford boxes to aim um, and to, to get all his cheapy homers. And it's kind of hard to say he won't do that again when he's going to be back in the same home park. You know, I, I might be most negative on Bregman, um, if he leaves that park, but all the situations that were there last year to have him, um, you know, hit for, for good power or something that would have been, um, on the level of, you know, 20, 25 homers probably in the, in a full season, 
they're all still there. And the, the, the conditions that led him to hit 41 homers are all still there. So I don't think he was made by the cheating. And I think that a lot of the cheating was, uh, was finished by, uh, 2019 and 2018. So I don't know. Bregman is a tough one for me. I love the plate discipline, the contact. Um, and I think that he will have a high floor, even if he doesn't hit for that power, but it is worth pointing out that, uh, the stack cast numbers on Bregman are not good. Part of it too, though, and I think this applies a bit to Arenado to some extent. It definitely applies to Jose Ramirez. It certainly applies to Bregman. When you put a lot of balls in play, I think you are going to lose something off of your hard hit rates, your average exit velocities, mm. your barrel rates. So I, I think it's a it's important to point this out because compared to the other elite players who might be close in K rate, if only slightly higher, there is a gap. But I think it's something of the byproduct of you know, striking out 15% of the time or less for the last four years. So that's what I'm pretty mindful of with Bregman. I think the thing that you've said a couple times about him that I keep carrying with me, he fits the park perfectly. He is adjusted to his environment. He is taking advantage yeah. of a ballpark that rewards pull power from the right side. And I see a pretty nice bounce back coming from him. I mean, 280 or better three years in a row before the shortened season. Power kept ticking up year over year. Even if I get back to the 2018 power, if he's a 30 home run guy with 100 runs and 100 RBIs, that's a steal yeah. in the third round. You're really happy with that sort of output, regardless whether or not he steals any bags. Maybe he gets you a handful of bags. Uh, maybe he doesn't. Uh, but I think the other part of this, too, and this is just the way I think about the player pool as a whole, what might keep me away from top end third baseman is my confidence in some of the other options. Suarez, absolutely among them. Sometimes you run the risk of hoping you get the discounted player and then you don't get them and then you're screwed. So you should have invested mm. earlier. I don't think that's necessarily true at third base, but for the players who go around Suarez, Yohan Mankata is heavily discounted. He has talked about how much he was impacted by COVID in 2020. Jeff McNeil didn't show us the same power in 2020 that he did in 2019. He had a pretty significant injury at one point as well. Obviously a multi-position guy, so it's nice to have that. And you got Max Muncy, who's come up on a few episodes too because he's first and second base eligible. All those guys go inside the top 100, all within 15 picks of each other. Out of Mankata, McNeil, and Muncy, do you see enough value there to be interested in them at their respective prices? I had to just rerun my auction values because it had uh, 20 games to qualify a position as the default. And I hope your <laughs> leagues aren't using that because... Uh, that makes it really difficult uh, to accrue a position in a 60-game season. Uh, but ah, there, I change it to eight, which is kind of industry standard. And there's there's Muncie uh, hanging out with Jeff McNeil uh, as all sort of $15 players. I forget what the question was. Uh, do I like those players? Do I? I think they're all... Yeah, do you see enough there? Yeah, I mean, Because like, Suarez is clearly the best value of the bunch for me. Yeah. But I think like Muncie's fine where he's going with Mankata... I don't think he's the player we saw in the shortened season. I mean, I think we had a, a fair question to ask coming out of 2019. Like, where where can we really trust his line to be as a hitter? Because the jump from the 230s to hitting 315 was pretty weird. He did bring the K rate down a little bit in 2019, but that jumped up on him in 2020. Projections have him at like 249 to 261 at the high end. I think Zips is the high projection. They all had him in the low 20s for home runs and then a little bit of speed, good run production because of the lineup. Would you take 
the over on like a 255 batting average projection for Moncada? I don't really love the the profile in terms of what he does at the plate with uh, the strikeouts. Um, and it's obvious to see uh, that he had the worst uh, sprint speed of his career last year. But it is also, even in his reduced capabilities due to COVID and the shortened season and age, he still was 70th percentile when it came to um, his his foot speed. So he didn't steal any bases, and so that might lead you to say he won't steal any bases next year. It might lead projections to only project him for six, seven, eight stolen bases. But he still is 70th percentile speed, and he is presumably going to be healthy. That's why I'm sort of sighing about COVID. But um, I think he can hit 260, 275. I think he could hit 275. Yeah, I think he could hit 275. What I would want to see is he's looks good he looks like he's he looks trim and he's he's running fast i think that actually will matter the most for his batting for his batting average because he's just going to strike out a lot that 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 he's shown us year in and year out and i think he's the kind of hitter because he hits the ball so hard he can exceed our expectations relative to his strikeout rate yeah that's possible he also runs well enough to maintain an elevated babip i don't think he's necessarily a dead pole sort of hitter about, yeah. Yeah, like there's there's a lot of things he does well to offset some of his biggest flaws. Still actually pretty young too, so I'm in. I think a 6.2% barrel rate in the shortened season is easily the lowest we've seen from him over the last four seasons. This is a guy that's usually up above 9%, peaked at 12.2% in barrel rate with that massive 2019. So I don't think you have to get a full bounce back to 2019 to be happy where he's going. You know, in the auction values... Um Moncada is in interesting space, and I don't know if this, this lines up with the ADPs. I'm looking at this right now, but uh, in the auction values, he sits nestled in between Justin Turner and Chris Bryant, which I find really fascinating because Justin Turner and Chris Bryant are a little bit more on the oatmeal side in that they seem projectable. They're, at least Bryant is still mid-career. Uh, Turner has some drop-off uh, capabilities due to his age. Um, but they seem just like steady Eddie, easy to, to bet on. Whereas Moncada seems to, you know, have a much higher ceiling, maybe a, a lower floor. But I think I would easily take Moncada over Bryant and Turner. Just, I feel like the variability also goes in the good direction. And I'm, maybe I'm just being, maybe, I, you know, that's like, it's like some sort of, um, it's like some, they, there's a name for this where you just only think about the good possibilities and don't think about the bad possibilities. Uh, it, it could go south on Moncada, I think. He could strike out 35% of the time, not recover the speed, um, have a 280 BABIP, and hit 210 with 22 homers and five stolen bases. I doubt be that Bryant or Turner would have a season that bad. Yeah, you're getting a more volatile player, but I'm. More in than out on Mankata, especially at the price. The ADP stays around 85. I think he's fine in that range. If you get sniped on Suarez, Mankata right there could be a very reasonable alternative. I think with McNeil, I'm chasing him more in leagues where I've got some early batting average risk or if I know I'm going to need some batting average risk to make up ground in power later on. Right? If I can kind of tell I'm power light because I've got plenty of speed early, Let's go ahead and fortify that batting average of the high volume sort of player. And if McNeil comes out and hits 310 or 315 with 15 homers and a good number of runs scored and a decent number of RBIs, 
that's fine because he's there to offset a Kyle Schwarber or maybe a Miguel Sano or somebody else who I feel really good about from a power standpoint, Joey Gallo, who I think is really undervalued. I think that's the specific target for McNeil. You don't have to go get those guys to justify him, but I find myself wanting to take him in anticipation of getting that surplus in power from somebody else later on. Uh, Muncy, I think, is fine where he's going as well. It's kind of interesting. His projection looks very similar to Matt Chapman, who goes about 20 picks later. But Chapman's coming off surgery on his hip to repair a torn labrum. And I, I think that difference is actually justified until we know where things stand with Chapman as we get closer to the start of the season. Yeah, but I like how you set that up with LeMay and McNeil and what what they can do um, you know, to to open up your possibilities later. Uh, a Muncie and Chapman pick means, you know, that you're not that your batting average just took a hit, and that now you have to start thinking about batting average when you start picking out players. But if you pick a Lemayhu and McNeil uh, there instead, you set yourself up for uh, taking a low power slugger later, and there just seem to be more low power sluggers that you can depend on than there are high batting average guys later on in the draft. I mean, that's just the way baseball is trending these days. So as much as I want to take like Chapman or Muncy and hope some good bad ball luck gets me to like 260 or 270 and like uh, then I took the better player, maybe the better player there, you know, despite the same projection, like the, the it's $14.8 for DJ LeMahieu and Max Muncy. I, I'm positing that DJ LeMahieu is a better player, even if they have the same exact auction value. Yeah, I know we've talked about LeMahieu on the second base episode. I have come to the conclusion that the projections might just be wrong about him. They just they just don't seem to fit who he is as a player. He hits the ball really hard. He puts a ton of balls in play. He can't shift against them because he hits the ball everywhere. And he's back with the Yankees. The numbers, it seems like, under-project his power. I expect more like 25 home runs. I think projections are in the high teens. I don't know how much of that is the longer track record of him not hitting a lot of home runs during his time in Colorado. Hopefully that's mostly washed out of the projection by now. Uh, but I still see something better than the Michael Brantley, Jeff McNeil sort of profile from LeMayhew. Uh, at the same time, given the alternatives, given that I'm more confident in 30 home runs from the likes of Rendon and Bregman and other guys that go around him, LeMahieu sort of seems like he's just not going to fit on a lot of my teams. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, Jeff, Jeff McNeil is projected to be 40, 40 cents less. So if there's a if there's a large difference in ADP, uh, maybe McNeil is the play there. But maybe I find this to position to be a, a nice deep position. And I think that you should only take a third baseman that fits your offensive strategy and fits your team. And it, it comes at some sort of discount off of what you see, because I think there are going to be lots of later players that are interesting. Um, J.D. Davis, Alec Baum, Austin Riley. Those are all young players that um, do certain things interestingly, like Austin Riley's stat cast numbers really improved year over year. I know he's still got some, like some bad walks and strikeout stuff in there, but you know, J.D. Davis the question has never been about his bat. You're just hoping that he holds on to third base on the depth chart uh, because of his defense. Um, and then Alec Baum is just, it's amazing how steady he is for a young guy. Like he, he seems like 
maybe not the highest ceiling in the world, but definitely uh, love his plate discipline, contact, and power combination. So that trio alone makes me feel like I'll be safe. If I took two out of those three and didn't take any of the top guys, I would still feel pretty good. My only concern, I guess, with Bohm is just the the price. Like he's right around pick 100. I think his ADP is 104. So you're talking about late seventh round, early eighth round of a 15-team league. Uh, I think when I look at him compared to Chris Bryant a couple rounds later, I mean, I know Chris Bryant's probably not MVP peak Chris Bryant anymore, but this version of Chris Bryant probably isn't all that different than what you're hoping to get from Alec Bohm. And with Bohm, maybe he gets buried in the lineup a little bit. With Bryant, you're not really worried about that. Just I'm on, taking Bryant with the discount for 2021 only. I think I might too. I mean, just on projections, uh, Bryant is supposed to be $3, $3 better than Bohm. That's a big enough difference for me that if they were both available to me in one round, I would take Bryant. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Cabrian Hayes for a moment. He is going behind Bryant, just inside the top 150 overall. This feels like the market getting hyped about an awesome debut that was really short. And the Pirates, as we've said, are going to be very bad playing time. Not really a concern. Lineup position should be pretty good. Hit tool has always been kind of ahead of the power for Cabrian Hayes. He's a great defender, so he's going to stick at third base. They're not going to mess around with him at all. I think he's just up for good at this point. How much do you trust what you saw power-wise from him coming off of such a limited amount of playing time in the shortened season? Yeah, we got 65 batted ball events. So we're we're not going to say that... Uh that much about his barrel rate, which is good. Uh, but we could point out that his max EV at 110 is okay and is, is pretty good, but it's not um, what you'd expect from a guy who will hit 35 or 40 homers. Um, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, you know, back from that. So uh, projections say 16 homers pretty much across the board. I might take the over on that. That seems a little low. But uh, I also don't think he'll hit 30 homers. 
Where would you put the over-under on his on his homers? I mean, it, the projections say the over-under is around 16. Zips has him hitting 12. Yeah, Zips is lighter on playing time, though, That's too. Right. So He's going to get the playing time. I actually think these playing time numbers are all low. Yeah, like I actually 21. think he's over on playing time. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say 19 and a half mm-hmm. if I were making odds on Cabrian Hayes' 2021 home run totals. Yeah, the bat X goes to the furthest on playing time with 605 plate appearances. Why wouldn't he just play all year? It's an interesting, interesting spot there. I don't think they're going to play games with him at this point. I mean, he's already 24. They've already waited this yeah. long, so just let it happen yeah. at this point. Uh, so I, I don't have a problem drafting him there, but there's some other players in the overall playing pool, pool picture that I like better other position options that fit better on my teams than Cabrian Hayes. How about this though? Here's an interesting uh, player uh, and it's kind of the flip side. We're, we're just talking about playing time and you know, that playing time is huge when it comes to player value. It's the biggest difference differentiation between projection systems and value systems. And it's one of the biggest drivers uh, of, um, of winning in fantasy baseball is, is getting the playing time. Correct. But uh, sometimes I wonder if like people who will be injured and won't give you the full playing time, but are really good when they are in are undervalued. So uh, the person I'm thinking about this in respect to is Josh Donaldson. If you have Josh Donaldson and then he comes in, like, especially I think in like more shallower leagues or, or leagues where unlimited DL, I feel like Josh Donaldson's a good pick because when he's in, he's going to be great. And if you can find anything on the wire to replace him uh, when he's out, you'll be fine. So I think it has some some question of like what replacement level is in your league. I think in AL labor, it'll be a little bit difficult because if I had Josh Donaldson in, and then even though I have unlimited DL, I put him on the DL, there's nothing on the wire. I'd be playing Kiner Falefa probably, or somebody like that. Yeah, you're playing a utility guy in his place while he's out, so that drop is pretty sharp. And I I think you're right. Like, the league structure, we talked about shallow leagues versus, like, mid-sized leagues. In shallow leagues, love Donaldson. The deeper the league, it depends how much risk I've taken on to that point in the auction or in the draft. Where he's going, I think he's a risk worth taking because if you look back at 2019, the lone season that Josh Donaldson played in Atlanta, those were the skills of a late second round pick 37 homers 94 rbis 96 runs a 379 obp you're giving up a little something in the batting average category compared to the elite of the elite third baseman right compared to the rendones and the bregmans and the machados like there's a there's a step down in that average category but the power and run production should be very similar on a per game sort of basis so i would agree with you that generally Josh Donaldson undervalued. I would be comfortable using him as my corner. If I was waiting a long time at third base, okay, I'm probably going to get him plus one of the next guys we're going to talk about just to make sure I'm covered at third base. Maybe you could double tap something like Josh Donaldson with Brian Anderson. You're not really worried about Brian Anderson not playing enough in Miami, so you've got a, a constant third base eligible solid player across the board who would also be there as your corner if Donaldson's your starter at third in a mixer. I think that could work in kind of an extreme situation where you've been attacking every other position and every other category first because you're getting a lot of playing time for a pretty discounted price. Uh, The other player in that range that the projections really like is Gene Segura. Not a shortstop anymore, but 
third base eligible, kind of back at the top 200 in a hitter-friendly park in Philly. The Phillies' bullpen is still very suspect, you know, but they're going to score runs. Like, they're running it back with an offense that should be pretty good, and with a full year of boom, that's one more quality bat they have. Uh, assuming that Reese Hoskins is healthy following elbow surgery, and this is one of the better lineups in the National League, and I think Gene Segura is quietly just going to do typical Gene Segura things somewhere in that lineup. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I have to apologize here to uh, Alan Harrison. <laughs> we were... Uh, we were doing some last-minute auto new uh, wheeling and dealing on on Sunday. We're, we were attempting to, um, and I wasn't in front of my computer. So when he asked for Gene Segura, like we were talking about a deal package on him, um, then I got down to my computer and like checked him out and was like, "Oh, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that." <laughs> Because <laughs> I've got him for like eight dollars in auto new. It's just a, it's like a, a really excellent price. Um, you know, it's good to see that Segura's uh, running speed really bounced back um, after a low point in 2017 due to health. Um, he's still a good runner, and the best part of him is just that he helps you across the board. You know, he 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 will give you some stone bases. I don't know if he'll give you ten or if he'll give you fifteen. Um, and I don't know if he'll hit you 18 homers or, you know, 22, but I know the bad X likes him. Um, uh, I know that he will give you performance in all the hitting categories. Um, and he does it at a, at my position and he'll probably have some positional eligibility for you. He, you know, he could be an interesting guy, uh, to put in MI or to put in util if you did the Donaldson thing, because he should be able to play. Uh, short and third and uh, and second for you. So Segura is like a like, based on his price and the way that you can move him around your lineup and the the value he gives you across the board. I think he's absolutely one of the him and Eugenio Suarez are like my favorite uh, third baseman right now. Yeah, high volumes of playing time on the cheap as it pertains to both Segura and Josh Donaldson. Uh, you mentioned Austin Riley and J.D. Davis a bit earlier. I think Riley's positives in the shortened season improve play discipline. He's always hit the ball hard, and he's got a track record of getting to a new level, adjusting, and then eventually playing at a slightly higher level. If you look back at the first time he was at AAA versus the return to AAA, there's a big difference in strikeout rate in particular. That gives me some hope that if he's got a regular spot in that Braves lineup, he'll be a tick undervalued outside the top 200 overall. Uh, Justin Turner kind of fits into that free agent conversation. Once he has a team, I think he'll move up 15, 20 picks, maybe get to the back of the top 200. Seems a little undervalued right now. Kind of similar to Josh Donaldson in some ways. Less power at this point, of course, but similar in that there's injury risk. But when he's out there, the per-game numbers are a bit better than you'd expect compared to what he actually costs in ADP. You know, a guy I like back here, too, um, is Heimer Candelario. He's one of the last players that I would feel comfortable sort of manning a corner infield position for me in a 15-team in a league. Um, you know, after him, it drops down to, uh, you know, like Evan Longoria and, uh, you know, bigger playing time risks like Yandy Diaz and... Um, you know, David Fletcher, Luis Urias, kind of play them everywhere types. Um, 
So Heimer Candelario is that uh, fail stop, I think. <laughs> it's like the, the worst case scenario. It's not, it's not bad. He's still projected to be worth about five bucks and, you know, in a 15 team league and be a useful player. And there's a lot of reasons to like him. His barrel rate jumped, even with a little bit of regression there. He should be a good barrel rate guy. I think he could hit 280 with 25 homers next year. So um, he's definitely uh, a playable guy, but he's also represents how deep the position is. You know, a guy who could hit, you know, 275, 280 next year with 25 homers is the worst case scenario. You know, but he also, there's a huge drop off after him. You know, it's, it's a barren wasteland uh, once you've swiped to the second page uh, on Fangraphs. <laughs> yeah, second pagers, uh, a little rough, but I think Ryan McMahon might be a lot safer with Arenado gone in Colorado because now they could just play him every day at third base and Maybe it stabilizes Garrett Hampson too, but maybe McMahon and Hampson can coexist together or McMahon and Brendan Rodgers can coexist together. Watch I just, them sign Michael Franco. Oh, I just called it. Franco and Jonathan VR here to uh, to ruin our lives. <laughs> We're using as, the Arnauto uh, savings, baby. <laughs> oh, it's our gift to you, the fans of this great franchise, to come out to the ballpark later this summer when we can have fans back and watch Jonathan Villar and Michael Franco. <laughs> Boot the ball Come around. on. <laughs> Come on. But I, I think with Ryan McMahon, part of the appeal in deeper leagues especially, he's eligible at first, second, and third mm. entering the season. Might not have all that eligibility going into next season, but hey, I'll, I'll take it for 2021. Hit 24 home runs in just 539 plate appearances in 2019. It wasn't a great line, but it was acceptable. 250, 329, 450. Still striking out about 30% of the time, even when he was good. So I'm not looking for some kind of massive breakout. I'm looking for someone who will accumulate pretty good numbers over a full season simply by virtue of having a lot of playing time in Colorado. So, you know, I don't think he's ever going to be a guy we're talking about as a top 100 overall kind of player, but I do think you can draft him where he's going right now and not be completely miserable in the process. Not a true second pager by my 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 estimation here with the bad X. Um he's uh he's a uh, I think uh, above Heimer uh above the fold. And above the fold and worth $8 <laughs> according to this on par with Seeger. Seeger is a nice uh oatmeal-y, um a pickup I think for leagues. You know, he's just not the kind of guy who's valued uh, by most people, they would look at the age, you know, rightfully so to point out that like, you know, the, all the variabilities on the, on the poor end, but he's also super projectable in that he's just been this, like a metronome guy, you know, like a 200 ISO guy with a good strikeout rate. That's going to, you know, you know, some years, not great batting average because of the, the pull rates and, and how he gets shifted. Uh, but also capable of hitting 240, 250 with 25 to 30 homers every year. And actually steals bases, weirdly. So, you know, Seager is um, one of those boring uh, boring options that I think people don't go to enough. Uh, and he's right there with McMahon. I'd like, you know, the risk that the Rockies do the dumb thing still exists for me on McMahon. So if faced with those two back-to-back, I might pick Seager. Seager. 
I don't think you're wrong to avoid the scenario in which the Rockies could screw it up. I do like Seager. I think we should have an all-oatmeal team at some point this draft season. Hopefully, by that time, I'll learn how to make graphics for the YouTube channel, and uh, we'll have some oatmeal. Maybe I'll eat an oatmeal cream pie on the stream. (laughs) (laughs) I Actually, oatmeal's not terrible, right? I'll I'll eat the Trader Joe's uh, apple cinnamon oatmeal. That stuff's pretty good. It helps me poop. Uh, Late options. That's too much information. Some late options at the third base position. Edwin Rios would be interesting if he found some playing time. I'm just really convinced that Justin Turner's going back there to take third base over, and then Rios is kind of more of a NL only league or draft and hold type player. Yeah, Yandy Diaz, I'm like always in the tank for just because, you know, he's a guy who hits the ball hard and has really good plate discipline. And in any given year, I feel like we could get some good health. Uh, to me, the depth chart has Joey Wendell and Wander Franco ahead of him. And Wendell, to me, is more of a true utility player. Wander Franco is not in the big leagues yet and may not be until later. And then would he play third? Um, so I think Yandy, Yandy is being um, undervalued by just looking at the sort of depth chart issues. And anybody who can hit the ball really hard and has good play discipline, has the chance to have a good year. Because a lot of the, one of the ways that you can change your launch angle and hit for more power is to target uh, high balls high in the zone. They go for higher launch angle. So, you know, if he's got a good sense of where the plate is, then he has the ability to target certain pitches. So that's my uh, Yandy Diaz one. But then uh, you'll like this other one. I like on the second fold. Um, I just took him in Fantrax best ball as my third uh, third baseman, Luis Urias. You know I'm on board with that because they are doing a whole lot of nothing at that third base spot. <laughs> Seems like they've got somebody penciled in there, maybe. I hope Urias is that guy for my sake because, like you, I am targeting him in draft and hold. He's eligible to a bunch of spots. We saw what he did at AAA with power. Again, giving him a pass, hoping he is back and productive here in 2021. Uh, as far as current prospects... We'll throw one former prospect into this part of the conversation because we should talk about him somewhere. Spencer Torkelson and Josh Jung, I would say, are the the two players that are potentially going to debut as third base prospects. I'm surprised the Tigers are trying Torkelson at third base. I mean, it doesn't hurt. If it doesn't work, you move him to first base and move somebody else out of his way when the time comes. So I guess for our sake, it's cool if he actually can handle it and hang there for a little while. Uh, but I think in the case of Torkelson, you probably could have argued that they should have given him some playing time at the big league level last summer just to continue his development. I realize that comes with starting his service time clock, and then you got to think about sending him down for 2021 to begin the year if it doesn't go well, but I don't think that would have been the worst thing in the world. My question for you is, is he draftable in typical redraft leagues, or is he more of a wait and see because you think we're going to have to wait until maybe June or July before there's even a chance he gets called up? Yeah, I think in both him, like, I think maybe in Jung's case, I could see um, a pathway to him being up sooner. Um, because I think that the Rangers have a possibility of being okay. I don't think that necessarily about the Tigers. And the Rangers, to me, it's like Dunning and Allard and Cody all pitch pretty well. And then Gibson and Lyles are just kind of steady Eddie. And they figure out 
there is some talent on the team in terms of like where does Calhoun play, where does Solak play, and I think they kind of get beyond like I'm just, I'm trying to describe like a good season for the Rangers and it's one that works out where Jung is up earlier, and that is. You know, they, they cycle through Odor and Andrews and find ways to get value out of them, not in the starting positions. Solak and Dahl and Calhoun all thrive in starting positions. The, the, the young pitching, uh, advances quicker and, um, third base becomes this like open question where you're kind of like, you've got Andrews and Odor and you're just trying to figure it out and Jung is raking. Right. Then you say, well, the team's doing pretty good. It's past. It's past, you know, it's been like four weeks. We don't, we don't want to wait till June. Let's just bring up Jung now, you know, he won't be super two. Let's just bring up now. So I, I could see that happening more than I can see the same thing happening for the Tigers. I think that's kind of how I looked at the Tiger situation. They also have Isaac Paredes who they could bring up again and play for I a think bit before Torkelson debuts. And they, and the Tigers will be incentivized to give Paredes a, a fair look, like a long look. Maybe even a half season, full season type look. Right. I mean, you've got Paredes and Willie Castro on the left side of the infield. Goodrum plays second for now. I think eventually Goodrum gets bumped. If the if the left side gets more crowded, Goodrum moves. He's the kind of player that just moves to wherever you need him. He's sort of like another VR where as the team gets better, he accommodates right. everybody else, <laughs> not the other way around. If Torkelson plays first, I wonder if Jamer goes back across to play third or you know, eventually Miguel Cabrera's contract runs out and they'll have the DH spot. But for now, that's also kind of limiting some of their options. Uh, I don't see them having a path to being very good and this year. I think they could be pretty interesting in 2022, though, yeah. because that young pitching, if it starts to click, they could be one of those teams that takes a step forward a year from now. But I don't think we see it this season. Yeah, I think another way of saying it is that, like, the Tigers have more sort of borderline young players they have to cycle through. And cycling through means... They have to give them six months. They have to give them three months try, right? And and then decide, okay, we like his bat enough to play him. Like Heimer, in Heimer's case, we like his bat enough to play him at first, but not as glove at third. They're going to have to go through that evaluation process with all these players. I feel like the Rangers don't have that for more of their players. Like I think they, you know, maybe there's some question of where Solak can play. Otherwise, they know there's a little bit more known commodity. So they don't, like if. Andrews or Ordor is like not really being valuable. They could just be cut. You know, yeah. no, they're not part At of the next point, yeah, future it's Rangers. Sunk, it's a sunk cost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just you, you accept that. Maybe eat some money, trade them to a team that wants to use them as utility guys. I think Andrews actually would have a little more appeal than Ordor at this point. Uh, the former prospect I sort of hinted at in passing, Carter Keyboom. He's got a job for now. You know, I'm just waiting for them to do something. One more trade, sign a veteran. I just I've lost all my faith in Carter Keyboom. It's gone. Like I I don't even want to throw late darts at him anymore, which is in part because he doesn't really barrel the ball and I, I just they don't seem enamored with him. I think our conversations with Britt and just how they seem to feel about him internally is starting to have a legitimate impact on how I view Keyboom and his previously perceived ceiling. Yeah, and looking back, you know, some of his power might have been softer than we thought. Um you know, he had a bunch of sort of like 180 and 190 ISOs. He didn't really have like a big power year. Um, and, you know, the strikeout rate was definitely kind of oscillating towards getting bigger as he's, as he advanced. Usually he got a second chance at the, at the league and did something better with it. 
Uh, so that's why I've remained somewhat hopeful. But he he did hit the ball 67 times into play last year and had zero barrels. Um, and the year before, he had two. So he has two barrels with 90 balls in play. And a max EV, he's now had 90 balls in play for his career, and his max EV is subpar. So he, the the quality of his of his batted balls is not good. Uh, and, and I think, it, you know, to be fair, we don't even know if he's a starter now. <laughs> You've got Starlin Castro and Luis Garcia and Josh Harrison. You, he may not be starting a third right now in their heads. Yeah, you could pretty easily put Castro at third base and play Garcia at second. If Garcia flops, play Harrison. Uh, but I also I, I can't rule out the possibility of Drupal Cabrera or one of those guys, Eduardo Escobar or someone like that ending up in D.C. and, and chewing up a lot of playing time uh, over at third base as well. Uh, the, really, the big news this week or this episode is your haircut. <laughs> and unless you're watching the pod, I mean, you got to be watching on, on YouTube. Just search for Rates and Barrels on YouTube. The video version of our pods is there. No oatmeal graphics yet, but we will get there. You can check out Eno's new haircut. This is my bedhead, too. I had to I had to debut with bedhead. <laughs> Not bad. It's it not feel, bad. It feels a little bit like, you know, stuck his finger in a light socket. But, hey, <laughs> it has volume. That's what all the kids want these days, isn't it? Volume. You got volume. I've never really been able to get that. I've got kind of a more tight, clean look, um, you know, with the scruffy face. Yeah, I was about to so say. Check it out dude, on YouTube. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be using tight and clean to describe your looks today, baby. <laughs> Ah, the hairline's tight and clean. There you the, go. Face the face is not. The face, not so much. Hey. It's very much it's a podcasting winter face. Winter in a very wintry place. Yeah, it's uh, it's very cold here, so I'm playing defense on that. <laughs> uh, if you've got questions for us, you can hit us up, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Should we do a quick beer of the month for, for last week? For last week, last month? Yeah, actually, let's throw, let's throw a beer of the month in. I've got one. I'll go first because that was my idea. Um, I have been having, uh, so I ordered a case of beer from Cellarmaker and I didn't even remember that I ordered it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how my life is. Nice. Uh, and it showed up and I was like, whoa, Cellarmaker. Oh yeah, I guess I ordered that. I opened it up and I bought a quadruple IPA and is this beer called Quad Dobus. And I don't even know if a quadruple IPA exists, if it's meaningful as a designation because basically once you get past a certain level with IPAs, you're just in barley wine. Um, but it's a little bit different with hazies because a 12.8% traditional or West coast IPA would be so, would taste like so much alcohol. I just, I wouldn't like it that much. I mean, Planet of the Younger is coming out right now and Planet of the Younger has always tasted really hot to me, as they say, just like a lot of alcohol and it's just it's very sweet, and it's almost like towards like um, brandy. You know, you start getting that that kind of like super sweet, super alcoholic kind of taste. And so I haven't been that fan of triples. I'm not a big fan of barley wines. A quad hazy just tastes like almost as much as strong as like a double uh, West Coast. It just doesn't. The alcohol doesn't come through, and it's super super dangerous because. A, you just had a beer with 12.8% alcohol. You should go to bed. <laughs> B, uh, calories come from alcohol. I just saw that yeah. Hop Slam, uh, which is a borderline triple IPA, very strong, clear, kind of West Coast style IPA, 
that the Hop Slam one twelve ounce container has three hundred calories in it. <laughs> How much do the mini kegs of Hop Slam have? Like the sh- you know little shelf size kegs, oh, they probably have. I would know, four pints in them. I would guess roughly twelve hundred like, calories. I don't know, dude. Like, what does my twelve point eight percent quad dobas have? That I, f- I feel like it has to be on the same level. In fact, if it's all alcohol, it has to have more. Does that mean I just yeah three hundred? That's like that's like a that's like a whole run. Yeah, I think to be. A professional beer drinker, you also have to be a professional runner yeah. or a cyclist yeah. or mountain climber. <laughs> you know, you have to have to add something to it. But uh, I'm trying to think back to the best beer I've had over the last month. I'm going to count the New Year's festivities. The uh, the Blind Pig from Russian River, obviously that's where Pliny comes from, uh, courtesy of you. Uh, very good, very good beer. I, I think... I don't know if I like it better than Pliny, but I think the challenge that any brewery has when they have one amazing sort of standout beer, it's probably like being a musician. You've made one great song. You've made one hit. Can you make another? Especially if you keep the style anywhere close to what you did first. It it crushes. I I, I love it. It was only 6% ABV, so I didn't have the got to go to bed feeling afterwards, which made it a really good New Year's Eve beer. I uh, would highly recommend, and I think the thing you've said on this show before, Russian River is becoming a lot easier to get than it used to be. When that happens, sometimes you start to lose quality. I've seen some people complaining about Toppling Goliath not being quite as good, not that that's become more widely available. I have not, with my only moderately refined palate, noticed a drop-off, but um, everything I've had from Russian River is fantastic, and I would add Blind Pig to that. Well, I definitely sure. noticed when uh, Ballast Point Sculpin left being a regional beer to being a national beer i definitely noticed inconsistencies in quality especially since um i think some places were just like leaving them out in the sun or um you know not for refrigerating them and so you you just weren't getting the same um, process but what's really interesting too about pliny versus a blind pig is that blind pig is actually um they're, they're actually both uh seminal beers in beer history in that um uh, Blind Pig was kind of considered the first double IPA. And now it doesn't say double IPA on the beer, uh, but it's a, at 6.8%. It was at one point strong for an IPA. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it's also like classic, more bitter profile. It's like a slightly more bitter classic thing. And that was the model for a lot of people's uh, beer for a while. And then Pliny the Elder came out and Pliny the Elder became the new model because it was sweeter and danker and more of a traditional West Coast IPA. Um, so in some ways, they've built two models that have powered two of the last three beer crazes. Now, some of their hazies aren't aren't amazing, so I wouldn't say that they have the seminal hazy. They didn't catch up with that. But having two models and then also having Consecration, which is a... a, a one of the best American sours that there is, uh, is really, uh, quite an accomplishment to just, you know, like I say, like, sometimes I feel like, um, uh, as an artist, sometimes you have that one good idea in you, <laughs> you just keep doing iterations <laughs> off of that one good idea. Don't, don't, don't think it too hard about what that means about my career. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, in the case of, uh, uh, of Russian river, they managed to, to at least have two, uh, if not three goat type beers. Yeah. Russian river. I mean, I I've started to really put together the, where am I going to go when COVID 
travel restrictions are, are truly over. I mean, Russian rivers at or near the top of the breweries that I'd like to visit. Uh, once I get out to California again at some point, whether whether that be this summer or fall or winter, I don't know when that's going to be. I don't want to think about that because as happy as the thought of being somewhere else makes me, not really knowing when that's going to happen bums me out. So uh, in the meantime, if you can get your hands on some Russian River, try it. Blind Pig, Pliny, Consecration, lots of great options, as Eno has mentioned on this pod many times before. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you want to check out Eno's articles or the updated fantasy baseball rankings, get in before the draft kit launches. You can do that for $3.99 a month to start. Theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels is the way to get that deal. So be sure to hit that up. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.